This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values.
Hi, Deborah. Hi, Jeff. So, Deborah, I want to start off with the problem that it seems to me led you to write the book, Counting How We Use Numbers to Decide What Matters. And in that book, you outline two meanings of that term, to count, which you describe as having a kind of double meaning. It means both to measure and to matter. I'm wondering what you see as the tension between those two meanings of counting, particularly from your point of view as a political scientist. How do we reconcile those two things, measuring and mattering? Thank you. Um, I love that question. It's just, you know, it's a, kind of the epigraph to the book. Kind of sums up exactly the problem that I wrestle with in the book. The first meaning, the one we usually think of, is to enumerate. We we go one, two, three, four. We count up how many there are, and that in that meaning, it answers the question: How many are there? The other meaning, to matter, is much more fuzzy, and it's much more political. In the first sense, when we are counting things up, I think of children learning to count, and they learn to point to things like apples or blocks or something. They're very physical things. But in the second sense, when we use counting to mean to matter, an example would be, you count for a lot with me. Or students ask me, this is how much does this count towards my grade? Is class participation going to count? Uh, and those, that meaning is, is much more political in the sense that, as a teacher, let's say, I'm deciding what's going to count towards your grade. I'm exercising power over you by deciding what counts in my enumeration of your final grade. So, and as you said, I'm a political scientist. We political scientists are trained to see power everywhere, everywhere we look, we're uh, hunted down. And I think when someone makes a judgment about whether to count something, they're making a judgment about whose interests are going to be included or excluded. That's the sense I mean in accounting is an act of power. My book is about the connection between these two senses, to enumerate and to exercise power. And this is really important because in the social world, we care about non-material things, things such as equality, justice, crime, uh, violence, education, uh, measuring learning, how much the students know, the health of the economy, or the distribution of uh, government benefits or taxes, government burdens. And for those things, you can't just point to something and say, oh, I see, I see 10 units of democracy in that country. That's how democratic they are. You can't just point to something. You have to make a judgment about what matters to count something as a crime or as learning or as a democracy. And that's the way we make a judgment about, about what matters. Yeah. So that's the connection between the two things. And that's also the tension between the two things, because it's not we usually think of counting as so objective, and in fact, it involves a lot of judgment. Yeah, I love that example that you give, particularly about democracy. Of course, in democracy, we, we typically say if we're talking about a pure democracy, not our specific whimsical American electoral system, but really in democracy, we say, well, we count the number of votes, the number of votes that in favor or against a certain measure or a certain candidate is an objective measure of how the population feels about something. But of course, in America, we say only those people who are over 18 and have certain qualifications, such as citizenship, 
are allowed to vote in the first place. And that idea that anybody over 18 is a democratic citizen is not an inherent, right, objective score. It is a decision about maturation. It is a decision about the age of consent. And so that itself, I think, gets to exactly your point. This idea that on the one hand, those numbers are objective. We can certainly count how many people voted for something. But how do we count how many people, to begin with, are people whose votes we're going to count? And that, I think, gets to that political question that you're asking. It's a fascinating question that really gets between these two cultures of counting, on the one hand, uh, a culture of mattering, and on the other hand, that culture of, of measuring. And I, I see this as a kind of tension that's built into these two kind of fields that we typically keep divided. You know, I went to UCLA for my graduate degree, and we had North Campus and we had South Campus, and they were very neatly divided between the two. North Campus was, of course, where we had the humanities and the social sciences, and South Campus is where we had all of the STEM cultures, and, you know, never the two should meet. Uh, we had gargoyles and nice gardens, and they had functional air conditioning and nice bathrooms. And so, you know, there's a thinker that comes to mind, a thinker that uh, you're quite familiar with. And, you know, you write about this this person, C.P. Snow, interestingly, both a novelist and a chemist, person who really straddles those two cultures. And uh, I was really interested in the way that you describe how this problem of measuring and mattering that belong to these two separate cultures emerged for you as a sophomore at college, where you felt torn between science and math on the one hand and humanities and social sciences on the other hand. I call them the North Campus, South Campus problem. Um, C.P. Snow famously dubbed those fields as two different cultures. I wonder if you could talk about that and, and what exactly troubled you? I think it's fascinating that you actually have two separate campuses. <laughs> So those two things. I was really good in math and science, already starting in junior high school and uh, and high school. And that so um, they came easily to me. They had right answers, at least the way it was taught uh, when I was in school. And I could find them, and I got A's. <laughs> and, and then there were the humanities and what we called social studies. And then when I got to college, social sciences that were super interesting. And they were connected to people and emotions and relationships and real events, whereas geometry was just like, you know, triangles and squares and trigonometry. I had no idea what it related to in the real world. So my problem was that there were no right answers in those. It all seemed to be about interpretation. And I just, I didn't know how to think to, to get there. And I didn't do very well in those courses. I didn't do terribly, but I, you know, I got B's and I couldn't get A's. And when it came time to choose a major, I realized that I cared more about social sciences and literature particularly, but I didn't feel that I knew how to be creative in, in those, nor did I feel like I could be creative in math and science because the way it was taught, we just repeated experiments that hundreds of people, if not thousands, had done before us. You know, put dissect a frog, put warm water and cold water on its heart, and see if it beats faster or slower at what temperature. And there was nothing creative in there. So, and then I was struggling with this. My dad gave me C.P. Snow's book, The Two Cultures to Read, and that nailed the problem for me. These two things: two people can't talk to each other. They think about the world differently. Two two kinds of people. And then I discovered a book by another British philosopher named Jacob Bronowski, a little set of essays. And Bronowski refuted C.P. Snow. He said, 
the act of creativity, the, the mental act of creativity is the same for scientists and mathematicians and painters and musicians and novelists, let's say. And this essential kernel of, of being creative for Bernowski is when somebody sees a likeness between two things that their own culture has never seen as being similar. And the example he gives is, that was most striking to me was he said Copernicus would never have figured out that the earth revolves around the sun instead of vice versa by just taking a lot of measurements and squaring and cubing everything in sight. Instead, he made this leap of imagination. He put himself on the sun and he asked, what would the orbits look like if I were looking at the planets from the sun? And all of a sudden, the orbits made sense. They looked like these ellipses. So that was his act of creativity, to see from a different perspective. He kind of liberated me, even though I thought, well, I'll never be a Copernicus because I don't think I have that big of imagination, you know. But I took a leap of faith to go into social science because I thought, okay, I don't get good grades, but it's more interesting. I care about it. I'm really passionate about it. And then I'll just say one other thing that really drove me to my resistance against taking numbers as objective. I took Economics 101, the introduction to economics. And in the first semester, the professor, it was microeconomics, and the professor put up what economists call supply and demand curves to basically show that people will behave according to the price of things. They will buy more if the price goes down, and they'll buy less if the price of something goes up. And he had sort of complicated, interesting examples of products that people were buying. And I raised my hand and I said, but price isn't the only thing that makes people decide what, what to buy or how to behave. How can you have such a simplest, old, simplistic thing? And he see, he put me down and he said, well, you're right that a lot of other things go into how people think and how they decide what to how to behave. But if we simplify drastically, we can make very powerful predictions. And I thought that was that was a fudge. I mean, I just thought that that can't be right. I want to understand human beings in a richer way than reducing them to one variable, one single thing that determines their behavior. I, I want to push on that a little bit. What what did you see as not being right? What led you to ask that can't be right? Because of course, when we extrapolate, we can make those kinds of predictions on a macro level. People do seem to fall into certain statistical patterns. So what was it that that made you want to push against that idea? What was it that you wanted to explore about human behavior on the individual level that maybe was in conflict with that idea of seeing human beings on a statistical level? I think, um, you know, I was what, 19 years old or something then, 20, I don't know. And I knew that my own behavior and the people around me, it, even for something as simple as, am I going to buy this spaghetti sauce or that spaghetti sauce? I knew that my behavior was determined by things like what brand did my mother buy or what do I feel like tonight or this guy I have a crush on likes that kind of tomato sauce so I think I'll you know so I just knew that there were all all kinds of other things that go into even a simple decision like pre like purchasing a material thing 
you know, at that age, you're really interested in relationships and you're, you're separating from your parents uh, and you're figuring out how much of their values you want to accept and how much you want to rebel against them. I just thought there was more to the world than could be captured in a number. This really resonates with me as a literary scholar. You know, sometimes as a literary scholar, our, our methodology, just to give a little background in literature, is what we call close reading. And it's premised on the idea that we can look at individual stories and we could look at how individual people experience the world in maybe idiosyncratic ways, in ways that maybe sometimes sweep against the grain of the macro. And in looking at individual stories, the claim of my discipline goes, we can uh, know and understand something about the human experience that can't be quantified. Now, people who deal with quantitative methods will sometimes bristle against the idea of close reading or looking at individual stories. They'll say something like, uh, individual stories are idiosyncratic or they're merely anecdotal and they don't provide the kind of data-driven evidence that we might require in order to say something coherent about the world. And as a literary scholar, I often think about the relationship between the, the kinds of stories that, that data tell and the kinds of stories that, well, stories tell, especially those stories that try to tell the accounts of individuals, stories that oftentimes fly in the face of uh, surface dimensions of experience that data-driven approaches frequently don't tell or can't tell. So I'm wondering how we think about the power of the anecdote or the significance of individual experiences in our age of numbers. How do we understand the relationship between qualification on the one hand and quantification on the other in our age of data science? It's a great question, and I'm totally with you. I find stories much richer and more persuasive than numbers. And maybe C.P. Snow was right that there are two kinds of people in the world once you find one more persuasive than the other. But stories are harder to pin down. They don't have a universal meaning. And I think that's what people who like numbers think that there's sort of more agreement and more universal acceptance of what a, what a number tells us. I want to give two, a couple of different examples. I, I teach courses on policy analysis, and I have often used a story by Alice Walker about a family where one daughter has learned to, to make quilts from her grandmother. And I use that story in a section I do on economics about the notion, the whole notion of free market economies and why they're so efficient. And I think the story perfectly illustrates, to me, illustrates what I always thought was Alice Walker's preference for another way of valuing things, but valuing the value of quilts in this case, besides what they're worth on the market, what they would sell for. They have so much symbolic meaning to the family because uh, this family, because uh, this girl who is quite disabled and is probably not going to be able to work to support herself in the market, has uh, cherished her grandmother's quilts. There's two different ways of valuing something. And I thought Alice Walker really preferred the second way, the sort of how how what quilts mean inside of a family. And one year when I taught this story, two women in my class who happened to be black had a very strong reaction. They interpreted the story completely the opposite, that Alice Walker actually was not so uh, negative on the market value, that she could see both ways of valuing a quilt. And that really illustrated to me 
that people ha- can have vast, completely opposite interpretations of a story. And yet the story was equally powerful to all of us in the class that, that day. No, even though we took different meaning from it. The other story I wanted to tell is one day I was walking down um, the street in Boston. It happened to be in front of the Boston Public Library, which is a very memorable site. And there were two guys walking just ahead of me, and I was overhearing that conversation. And it was clear they had just been to a conference, and it was some business-related conference I took today. And they said, so-and-so, they used the name, he had graphs, he had numbers, he really had the facts. He's the one I really believe came out thinking he really knew what he was talking about. And that you know, represents this, uh, the other kind of person who thinks that numbers are really compelling. And they didn't question the numbers, the, at least the part you know, of their conversation I heard. But I want to highlight that when, you, when experts use numbers, they are also telling stories with their numbers. That's what people use numbers for. They don't just throw random numbers on the screen in a PowerPoint. They have a purpose for counting something, and they use numbers to build narratives. And there are some classic narratives that you all recognize as soon as I say them. They would put up numbers to say, this is a problem and it's getting bigger. Here are my numbers to show you that the numbers are increasing over time. Or here is a solution to a problem that somebody has put forward, maybe a drug to cure cancer. And here are some numbers, here's a graph to show that this cure is, uh, is more effective uh, than another cure because we, have, we can measure the number of people who are cured, let's say. Those are telling stories. Those numbers are telling stories. They're saying this thing is a problem and it's growing, or this thing is a solution and it's growing. In a sense, those stories have heroes and villains, just like the literature stories that you deal with. And I'll just give one more example. During the early days of COVID, when we didn't have very good ways of measuring, we didn't have a lot of tests yet and ability to test people, but all we could do was count deaths and um hospital beds and ventilators and the lack of those things. And the governor of New York State, Cuomo, he had a daily broadcast in which he put up numbers behind him on a big screen. And he put them in the form of a graph that was a curve that looked like a mountain. And he told a story every day about this graph. And he said, where um, this is like climbing a mountain, the, the number of cases is getting bigger and bigger every day, and we have to be prepared for what happens when we reach the peak. Just like if you're a mountain climber, you better have all the equipment you need for to keep yourself warm and all the oxygen you need at the top of Mount Everest. So that's how we are planning how to acquire enough ventilators and enough hospital beds and enough personnel. We're we're not of planning for tomorrow, we're planning for the top of this peak. And that was a very dramatic narrative that gave people reassurance that, yes, the problem was getting worse, but also when you come down the other side of the mountain, you know, those number of cases are going to decline. And he was also telling the story, I, I have control over this. I'm a good leader because I'm thinking this way and I want to show you that I, I'm going to help you know, solve this problem. 
I think this is a really interesting question because a lot of what you're talking about leads into, I think, um, a question endemic to the idea of counting, one that you really meditate on in your book, which is, you know, in the example that you just gave, there's a prior decision to counting the number of deaths, which is that we should count the number of deaths. The category of deaths is a primary category that we should count rather than, for example, the number of people who are experiencing mental health distress, right? And so that kind of a priori categorization seems to be to be essential to telling stories in the first place. And a lot of the questions that you raise about counting and the reality of numbers in that context of counting and measuring to begin with seem to be pivoted around that prior a priori question of categorization. We don't know what to count or how to count prior to our classification and categorization decisions. How do you think about data categories? What is the relationship as you see it between categorization on the one hand and quantification on the other? Categorization is a prerequisite to counting. I think you just said it really nicely. You can't count until you decide what you're going to count. And this is where the political definition comes in. What counts as an instance of the thing I want to count? With COVID, for example, early on when we didn't have tests and we wanted to know how many people died from COVID, a lot of people were dying at way higher rates than they had been dying prior to the this epidemic. But we didn't have a way of knowing whether they died from COVID or something else. A lot of people were just dying at home. There weren't enough you know, hospital beds. So people had to come up with criteria for what we will count as a COVID death, as a death from COVID. And they eventually came up with, well, if they showed certain symptoms that were known to be typical of COVID, they might count it as a COVID death. But and you know, the details aren't important there. The point is that counting is a way to break down an abstract problem into smaller components and pieces that you can observe and then go one, two, three, count them up. If you want to measure something, you have to define it first. And categories are the way we do that. Categories tell us, or we decide, these are the elements of that abstract thing, democracy, productivity, whatever you, uh, whatever you want to think of. A good example would be in the US and in fact in all of the advanced industrial economies, there's usually some kind of public insurance for people with disabilities. Well, how do you decide who is disabled to be eligible for those kind of benefits? In a, the, the United States, in the Social Security Administration, there's a definition that uh, somebody is disabled if they are unable to work to earn a certain amount of income every month that changes over the years, but due to a medical impairment, that's why they're unable to work. And then um, even that, what's a medical impairment? How do you decide what that is? You have doctors examine people, but you can take an example I love to use is if somebody breaks their little finger and lose, can't use their little finger or their little finger is, is somehow lost in an accident, if they're a truck driver, that's not an impairment that's going to prevent them from working and earning their regular income. But if they're a professional violinist, it is. Uh, losing the little finger. That's just in one illustration of why counting disabled people is really a very difficult problem. And you got to get down to nitty gritty categories to be able to count. There's one case that you raise in your book that I think is particularly illuminating in this context. I I'm thinking of it right now as you talk about this problem of trying to categorize what, what counts in order to count it. 
Um, and that that case that you bring up in your book is of the United Nations attempt to quantify the level of violence against women in different countries globally. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that study and the questions that emerged from it about how and whether data can accurately capture reality and to what extent it can capture that reality. What lessons do you draw from that story? Can you talk a little bit about the case? Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you were thinking about it? Can you talk a little bit about the lessons that you drew from it? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I love that case too. But around 2005, the, the United Nations General Assembly decided to do some kind of a survey to find out the level, measure the levels of violence against women, women in all the member countries of, of the United Nations. And they did that by, as the UN always works, by forming a whole lot of committees and inviting uh, women to join these committees and come up with a definition of violence against women, uh, with, with categories of violence against women that they could use in a survey. And then they would go run the survey around the world with women and ask them how, if they had been victims of this or that particular behavior that was going to be counted as violence against women. This is a study, by the way, I didn't do this study. Um, an anthropologist named Sally Engels Mary sat in on all the committee meetings over years, and it took years to come up with the survey questions. Uh, and in one particular meeting she described, the, these committees were dominated by women from the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, what's sometimes called the global north, even though Australia and New Zealand aren't in the north. But at one committee meeting, there were a few women from Bangladesh and probably from some other countries in the so-called Global South. And the women from the Global North had come up with a list of behaviors that they thought were violence against women. And they were hitting, kicking, biting, slapping, grabbing, pushing, beating, and choking. And the women from Bangladesh said, well, we have other kinds of violence against us. Burning, throwing acid on a woman's face, dropping a woman from a high place, smashing a woman's hand, putting a needle under her fingernail. And they also wanted to include psychological violence. And they had three categories they named. Expelling a woman from the house. And in some parts of Asia, when women are menstruating or, or have uh, are giving birth, they're considered unclean and polluting and they're forced to sleep outdoors on the ground. So another one was rebuking or rejecting women for giving birth to a girl instead of a boy, because boys are more prized in those cultures. And another category of emotional or psychological violence was taking additional wives, where polygamy is, is important. And in the end, the committee, that was probably by some sort of majority vote, but they did not include these categories of violence against that the Bangladeshi women said that they experienced. And I know India and Nepal, countries where I've been, and it's the same thing there. Those surveys would not have captured the most important forms of violence in those countries because they weren't included in the categories. In the end, actually, the UN or the powers that be in that particular study uh, agreed to have a supplementary part of the questionnaire that they would issue, give only in Bangladesh and maybe in a few other Asian countries that listed those categories so they would capture them. 
but I think it's a really vivid example of how what we decide to include will either take account of some people or it will not. It will exclude them. When I read your book, especially this part of the book, I came up to what I think of as a fundamental conflict. Because on the one hand, I think it's important to contextualize and challenge numbers and the seeming objectivity of numbers or the reality that they describe. Your example that you just gave gave a, a really perfect example of this, right? You could have used those numbers minus those kinds of instances or descriptions of violence to conclude that Bangladeshi women don't experience much gender-based violence. Um, that could be a reasonable conclusion if you decide to omit those certain categories. And so I, I want to hold that idea that the decisions about what to count uh, are not neutral, that these statistics are not neutral, that we want to remain mindful of the ways in which numerical quantifications, which seem to present stable and neutral views of the world, can often presuppose certain values and assumptions and ideas that are in no way neutral, that are oftentimes full of geographical bias, cultural bias, and, and then we export those biases as kind of universal worldview. And yet at the same time, I'm also mindful of the ways in which bad actors have used this very argument to demerit really important findings through numbers. I'm reminded in particular of the ways in which the tobacco industry sought to undermine legitimate studies about the relationship between cancer and lung disease and other serious illnesses caused by smoking cigarettes by way of claiming that the data cited in these studies were anecdotal or subjective or that we couldn't identify causation from the kinds of correlations that the numbers showed. So on the one hand, I do want to say that we want to challenge the primacy of quantification and the assumptions and biases and presuppositions that go into it. And on the other hand, it does seem to me that we do want to make a claim that numbers have a fundamental reality in being able to describe phenomena. How do you think about that balance between questioning the reality of numbers on the one hand and also, on the other hand, maintaining that we need to insist on the information that they carry as irrefutable at times? It's a really great question. I wrestled with this from even before I started to write the book. People said to me, you're not that far in all numbers, are you? <laughs> you know? And I, it's such a tension. I really do wrestle with it. But first of all, I want to distinguish between bad actors, what, uh, what I would call the bad actor problem, and what I see as a deeper epistemological problem, and this epistemology is the sort of philosophy of that area of philosophy that looks at how we know what we know or what we think we know or what we claim we know. So uh, the, the bad actor problem is uh, like the, the tobacco example is really great. People really, the tobacco industry created doubt about the science uh, that found a link between cancer and, um, and smoking. And more recently, oil companies have done the same about cli climate change. For that set of problems, I think bad actors deliberately manipulate the data. They cherry pick the data to find studies that uh, that they like that prove their point or that create doubt in, uh, in the case of tobacco, let's say. Or they fudge the numbers uh, or they don't submit studies that don't uh, that don't have the results they like. And we should challenge these all the time, of course. But the other problem, what I call the epistemological problem, is much harder to get a handle on. When you say numbers have a fundamental fundamental reality as descriptions, my mind goes back to categorization because numbers are only as real as the human decisions that go into deciding what counts as a component of or evidence of the existence of something. 
the numbers aren't real. They don't have a fundamental reality. They are the artifact or the result of human decisions to decide of deciding to decide what to count. And those are subjective decisions. And I'll just say that the more political, politically controversial an idea is or a concept, the more subjective and less trustworthy the numbers are going to be. That's one way I'd think about balancing it. If this is something that where the result of a count is really going to be beneficial to one set of people and not so beneficial to another set of people, and you can be sure that they're fudging with the numbers, it made them more sophisticated the way than just you know misreporting the data. I also like to add to this question an example of where I think the numbers really did capture reality in a highly politically controversial situation, because I I I share your concern that. I, you know, we don't want to throw our, the baby with the bathwater. Flint, Michigan, the water supply. There was the city in Michigan where the city changed the source of its water from one river to another. As a result, the, uh, the second source came through very old pipes that had a lot of corrosion and a lot of lead in them. And the whole water supply of the entire city of Flint had a very high lead content which is very dangerous to children and infants. It leads to mental retardation and hinders their mental development. There were two important sets of measurements that proved that it was the switch in water supply that caused this problem of lead in the water. One was an environmental scientist who measured the lead content of water coming out of the before and after the switch of the supply from one river to another and one set of pipes to another. And, um, and he showed that the level, the level of the lead particles or content in water really went up drastically. And this gets back to those were physical things that were easy to count and easy to absorb, those lead particles. And then there was a pediatrician who had been doing lead, lead poisoning tests in, in children both before and after, because lead paint poisoning has been an issue in the United States since the 70s. So most cities are doing preventive screening of children. And this pediatrician had before and after data and showed that the blood levels, you know, more children had high levels of lead in their blood uh, after the switch. And put two and two together, there was a real causal story that emerged from those two sets of numbers. And there were a lot of suits, unfortunately, in the end. No one in Michigan was held accountable. That's where political power becomes more important than science. Uh, the, the numbers really made a definitive case that it was a decision to um, switch the water supply that had caused this big problem. I'm going to ask this question knowing that it's a little bit unfair to ask this of a political scientist, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's a question that I get asked all the time by my data science students. When I talk about the problems that you are elucidating, one piece of feedback or one objection that I get back from them is that I'll get a student who, for example, you know, works on creating planes that fly for Boeing. And they will say something like, well, maybe in the context of political science, we can have debates about how real numbers are. But at the end of the day, if I don't have my numbers right, the plane falls out of the sky right? or the plane doesn't fly. And so in certain circumstances, Numbers are absolutely real, they will say. 
And I wonder how you address that question coming from somebody who, for example, works in physics, who wants to make the case that in certain circumstances, numbers seem to have a kind of absolute reality. Are there cases where numbers are more, quote, real than others? For instance, are numbers more real when describing some fields or even some areas of the human experience or areas of research than in others? I want to answer that in two ways. First of all, I had a very similar experience. Um, I was teaching at MIT in a technology and public policy program. I always started my classes. I'd give students some readings, and, and then I'd say, what's this person, this author's argument? And we'd talk about the arguments of the different. So one day, an engineering guy, I think he was in material engineering, he came up to me after class, and he said, no, he was in class, and he said, I'm an engineer. I don't know what an argument is. I don't know how to answer your question. We don't have arguments in engineering. Could you define an argument for me? And I, I was so taken aback. I said, that's a really great question. You, you have to give me time. I'm gonna, I, I will think about it, and I will come back to the next class, and I'll tell you what an argument is. And I went home, and I thought about it for two seconds, and I came up with the same example your student said. I said, okay, you guys build bridges. You have arguments about what's the best way to, what's the best material to use to have a bridge that isn't going to collapse. And you do your studies, and one person might say steel is the best one, or another. I don't even know my material science, but another one might say cement is the best one or something, right? But what you are doing is you are having an argument about what is the best way to do something. And then you're saying, and my numbers prove I'm right, but that's the argument. What is the best way to do something, even in material things? If your student asked you, well, uh, when we come up with some numbers, aren't they right? We, we hope that they are, but how many bridges have collapsed? And how many in Boston, the big dig, putting a big tunnel underneath a, a highway, there had been a, a highway above ground and they made it into a tunnel underground. And after it opened, panels fell off the ceiling and one woman was killed because this went into a car. So they thought they had the right numbers, but just because you think you have the right number doesn't mean... There's only one. There really is. <laughs> so, As for what makes a number more real than others, I think you mean more objective. That's what you say, that most people would agree on something, or that it's got some universal value. I would say numbers are less real when we're counting abstract things. Go back to my examples, disability, democracy, productivity, whatever. And they're more real when we're counting material things or physical things. So maybe stress testing a bridge is more real than deciding who's disabled. I would say it probably is. But I think there are degrees of realness here, if you know, if you will. I think numbers are less real or less objective when we're counting human behavior. And the numbers will be used to punish or reward people in some way. And then people will change their behavior as you're counting them, or they'll report different different numbers or different, they'll give different answers in order to not look bad or to get the benefits of, of whatever you're doing. So numbers, if they're used to, to create incentives to, um, to reward and punish people, they're probably not going to be, when you're counting human behavior and people know that, uh, your numbers are not going to be so real. I did a section in the book on a public opinion surveys where 
you're asking people big questions like, do you think the United States is stronger than Russia? <laughs> you know, Or which of the following candidates do you think is going to be better for the United States? It's such a subjective question. Uh, and people will give answers according to how they interpret the question, or sometimes they want to seem educated or some way dignified to the interviewer. Public opinion researchers call that the social desirability effect. People answer the questions in order to create an impression of themselves, depending on how they think, the, you know, they're, who they're talking to. That's sometimes called the observer effect. The, um, all, all these things that I've been talking about, the idea that when we made the process of measuring people changes the measurement that you get because people are not rocks. They change their behavior according to how they want to appear. So those are cases where I think numbers are less real in the sense I think you mean. And I think that you, you put your finger on something incredibly important, which is that you know we can count things. We can make value-based decisions about what to count and how to count them. But the most important things uh, are things that we really can't count and, and can't measure. I'm thinking about you know fundamental human values, the things that we really go to war for, which are things like love or justice or truth, which are very hard to measure. And as a humanist, I, I take for granted that some of these things, some of these most important things in our culture truly can't be measured, even as our culture moves toward the desire and the demand to count things or to enumerate what we value. And we can have proxies for these things or counting them or heuristics, that is to say, crediting the work of Daniel Kahneman and Tal Tversky. We can have substitute questions that we ask in order to measure things that really aren't quantifiable. But we really can't measure those things, love or justice or truth or beauty. So for instance, in the domain of justice, we can ask about how our laws are fairly or unfairly applied racially or in terms of gender or in terms of class. And we can do that by looking at how many policies are fairly or unfairly applied to each of those kinds of groups. Or we can look at, for example, how many legitimate white collar crime cases involving financial wrongs ultimately result in penalties versus non-white collar crime involving financial wrongs. But we really can't measure whether our laws are just in the first place because the principle of justice is indefinite in its shape. We constantly argue about what the idea itself means. We can measure how long somebody stays with us in a relationship or how many times somebody says, I love you to us, or how many people we believe ourselves to have loved or how many heart emojis we uh, have in our various messaging systems or how many likes we get on a certain picture that we put of us and our, our significant other. We really can't measure what it feels like to love somebody or what love ultimately is because we can't define that concept of love. And so to me, the attempt to quantify these things to give us our likes and hearts uh, in our social media apps in order to give us a sense of how much we are loved or liked, those algorithms don't necessarily and really can't leverage weights and measures uh, in numerical values to provide these kinds of ultimate quantification systems. And so I guess I'm, I'm pointing at this idea that our attempt to quantify these things and the impossibility of really defining these shapes to begin with and quantifying their meanings in any significant way seems to get at a core problem that our society is reckoning with about what it means to know something in our world. 
Is our world really objective or measurable? And can it, by way of hearts or likes or, you know, uh, yeses or nos or, you know, uh, amounts of response to a certain uh, question that we put on social media or photo that we put up on our Facebook page, can we measure ourselves as human beings with objectivity? How do you think about this question of objectivity and the turn to numbers and to counting and what it seems to tell us, that is to say, what our turn to counting seems to tell us about the changing value or question or dilemma of objectivity in our culture? Well, there's so much in that question. I mean, first of all, I I don't think that counting emojis or how many times somebody says, I love you, captures anything that's important to me about whether I feel loved. <laughs> and I suspect, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I sometimes wonder if people who grew up, younger generations who grew up in that culture, really, the emojis actually say more to them than they say to me. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I don't think we can measure any of these things objectively. But I think we there's a kind of a human need to want to know these things better and, and get more of a handle on it. But it gives us more security to think that we that we know how much we're loved or how much justice we have, let's say. Oh, uh, let me take your example of um, measuring justice by looking at something more empirical, how, how whether our laws are fairly applied. And to do that, what does fairly applied mean? Well, we have to say there are different groups in society by race, ethnicity, gender, uh, whatever, and then ask, well, how often are these people arrested versus those people? And how often are these people convicted versus some other group? That's a good example of what we were talking about before. Okay, you have to come up with categories first and decide how are you going to define fairness into something that can be observed? And we have paper records of arrest rates and conviction rates and so on. And then we also have census data on the number of people of different ethnic groups and racial groups in society, in a population, and gender, of course. But then each of those things, I want to say, let's say arrest rates and the number of measuring the proportion of uh, of people of different races in, in the like the United States, those things are very subjective. They're more objective than fairness, the, that fuzzy concept, but the way we have measured and counted race and ethnicity in the United States has changed with every census from 1790, the first federal census in 1790 to the most recent one. The categories that the counters put in, the census bureau, the categories they stick in have changed. The label they label them, which all of a sudden they will add Mexicans, you know, in the 1930s, uh, and then later in the uh, 1980, all this broad category of Hispanics was uh, added. Those are shifting the categories underneath these empirical measurements. So I don't know how they're getting us somewhere, uh, and those are you know categories we care about, but they're not the be all and end all of objectivity. The other thing I'd say, why there's such a demand or a desire for more mathematical algorithms or ways to decide things, I'll take the criminal justice system again. Judges and police have to make awesome decisions. It's really an awesome responsibility to decide whether to throw somebody in jail for 20 years or the rest of their life 
people who have the responsibility to make those decisions don't want to be biased. They want to be as fair as possible. And I think we are relying more and more on algorithms to make these decisions because it takes the sense of responsibility out of the human beings. It makes them think, okay, I'm relying on tools that are more objective. I can't be biased because, and nobody can accuse me of bias. And on the other side, by the way, we citizens want assurance that the people who are exercising power over us are not being arbitrary and biased. Sometimes people believe that these algorithms are actually neutral and objective, but more and more it's coming up, especially in the criminal justice system and in the foster care system where they're used. Algorithms are also used. Got biases built into them, into the way the algorithms are. And you've probably interviewed other people on the show who are dealing with algorithmic bias, so I won't go there from here. But that's something of an answer to your, to your question. Well, one one other point, and just to to give to give one up in service or in favor of those practicing data science, is that oftentimes, and very famously in certain cases, these models seem to work. The numbers seem to do very well in terms of predicting certain things. I'm thinking, for example, very specifically about one of the most famous cases about a, a field that decided to employ data science and had enormous success. Uh, I'm thinking, of course. Uh, about the very famous case of the uh, Oakland A's manager, Billy Bean, who Michael Lewis famously popularized in his exploration of that data-driven approach to baseball. Billy Bean very famously used statistics and uh, numbers in order to make what at the time was very counterintuitive decisions about who to bring onto his team and who to call up, for example, from the minor leagues or who to trade in baseball. Um, and that model seemed to really work. The A's, for a period of time, did fantastically well. Now, of course, these algorithms can, can include a lot of bias in them, but they do seem to provide a certain amount, not just security, but accuracy in terms of how the world seems to work that benefits the people who are using them. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how we deal with this tension between, on the one hand, the numbers carrying these biases and perhaps perpetuating certain forms of inequalities on the one hand. And on the other hand, the defense of those algorithms and the numbers and the data science patterns uh, that are employed in order to make important decisions and to map the world, which is they do seem to provide a sense of accuracy that can be tremendously beneficial, particularly in economic terms for the people who use them. I think the real question has to do with you know the way that um, certain maps and models of the world for example, I'm thinking of Amazon's algorithm about what you're likely to buy next do seem to work and provide a strong economic model that companies can use to tremendous benefit in ways that allow them to accumulate power um, in ways that allow them to, using that presumably accurate map of reality, transform what our society and the social fabric looks like to typically their economic best ends. But these are you know, important ways in which accurate maps and models of the world have been used to benefit certain groups of people. The baseball thing that has always seemed to me uh, mystical. I don't know why it works, <laughs> but it seems to me that that's a different area. Oh, and baseball is a game, and I know a lot of money rides on it, really important to lots of people. But 
to me, it's not as important as who gets parole and who doesn't, or who has their children taken away from them and who doesn't, or any of the other kind of social and more political areas that I'm familiar with, where there in every one of those areas, the numbers where they, they seemed maybe at the beginning they seemed to be accurate, uh, but more as time goes on people discover that they do have certain biases built into them and and they advantage different sets of people and you know or and don't protect other sets of people in those kinds of cases where wherever and again I'm a political scientist so I'm really interested in the government programs that that either help or harm citizens and we you know we hope for more help and less harm Well, to circle back to something that you were talking about earlier, um, this idea of numbers attempting to describe a kind of human reality and the tension between human reality and that which we can describe using models uh, designed by numbers. Your book memorably describes a case where the reality of numbers was used to mask a fundamentally philosophical human problem, which is the problem of how we count human beings. And I'm thinking here of the case you described, the three-fifths compromise of the 1787 Constitutional Convention. Can you talk about that particular case and what it reveals to you about the reality of numbers? So that was, for those who don't know, um, the founding fathers of the United States were gathering to write a constitution, a new constitution for the United States. It hadn't been the United States before then. It had been 13 colonies. In that case, there was a conflict between the southern states, which were slaveholding states, and the northern states, many of whom had slaves, but it wasn't nearly as big a thing or as important to their economy as in the South. And there was a conflict over how the slaves would be counted in the federal census, because they had already, the founding fathers had already agreed that the number of seats in the House of Representatives in Congress would be determined uh, by the uh, proportional to the number of the population of each state. So if slaves were counted in the South, they couldn't vote, that was for sure. They were not going to be able to vote. But if they were counted as part of the population, the Southern states would have had a much higher proportion of seats in, uh, in Congress uh, than the North. And of course, the North didn't want that. So the people argued back and forth, well, how much should a slave count? And James Madison, one of the founding fathers, came up, they tried out different fractions. Should they count a third, a half? And finally, he came up with, and people said, no, only from the North and the South, they disagreed. And finally, James Madison proposed three-fifths, that each slave would count as three-fifths of a person. And somehow everybody agreed to that. So that was the compromise, the so-called three-fifths compromise. What that was about, nobody for a second thought that three-fifths was the real value of a, of a slave, of a person. They weren't pretending that that was a real measure of a human being. But what it was about, that controversy, was finding a way to balance the political interests of the North and the South in setting up a new government. And why this example is so important to me is it illustrates how politicians often use numbers to resolve intractable problems. They come up with uh, some numbers and they say, they get people to agree on a number and it gives a little bit, if you have it of some fraction, then you're giving a little bit to each side. A more contemporary example of that 
was in the original decision of the Supreme Court called Roe v. Wade that uh, that said states could not uh, prohibit abor- abortions up to a certain point. And that was a very controversial issue, still is a very controversial issue, and that decision has been overturned. But, but basically, the two sides, one side says a fetus is a living human being. It is a human being, and we can't kill it. And the other side says it's not a human being. It's fetal tissue, and to, and a woman is a real human being, and her interests or her value is or should be stronger, should count for more, to use my language. And what Justice Blackman, who wrote the decision in that case, what he did was he used a mathematical solution. He divided pregnancy into three trimesters. Pregnancy was nine months, three months each. And he said, as the fetus grows, in the first trimester, it doesn't, it's not really a human being. And so the states can't really have this very strong interest in protecting it. But in the second trimester, it becomes a little bit more like a human. And by the time it's in the third trimester and it's viable, it's a human being and a state has a strong interest in protecting it. So a state could prohibit abortion in the third trimester but not in the first trimester. And then there was some wiggling in the middle. And that, to me, is another really great example of how you take something completely abstract, life or not life. You know, is a fetus a person? And then you find a mathematical solution to it that seems to take the politics out of it by coming up with numbers that symbolize the, the difficulty of the problem. Yeah. And, and I think we go back to that that categorical question uh, or the question of categories. And I wanted to see whether I could bring that question of categories together with the question of ethics. There's, there's a question that I think for me um, is at the core of this because I spend a lot of time thinking about ethics. I teach ethics. So I was really interested in a point that you make in your book about the way that increasing our reliance on numbers might actually not just be changing the way we think about the world, and our uh, ethical understanding of that world based on the way that we categorize or map out that world. But but the way that our reliance on numbers may actually be changing our understanding of ethics itself. And in your book, you seem to suggest that the extent to which numerical values have come to stand as objective answers to what have been for a very long period of time, philosophical questions, has led to a new uh, resurgence or maybe even a dominance of utilitarianism. And to give some background to describe that term or how I'm using that term utilitarianism and what its uh, philosophical center of gravity is, uh, ethical traditions vary in how they address the fundamental ethical question, what ought I to do or what I should do? We use words like ought or should in the context of ethics under conditions where there is no law telling us what we must do. So we have to speculate about what the right course of action might be in ways that maximize the good and minimize harm. And philosophical traditions have for centuries, for the history of ethics, you might say, come up with very different answers to the questions of what we ought to do or what we should do. Kantian ethics, for example, says roughly, do your duty. An ethics of human rights predicated on that tradition seeks to protect minorities from the tyranny of majorities by preserving certain human principles that we say must stand even when the preservation of those principles can cause harm or damage in other ways. Now, utilitarianism, as a philosophical tradition says, and I'm paraphrasing here, the greatest good for the greatest number. If we contrast that idea of the greatest good 
for the greatest number to, for example, human rights ethics, we can see how such a philosophy can, after all, really transform what we end up doing. Because the majority in the context of something like utilitarianism benefits greatly or can benefit greatly from the brutal sacrifice of a minority group or harms demanded on a minority group. And utilitarianism as a philosophical tradition still concludes that the action is morally correct, even if a small minority group will suffer. So for example, to give this some practical reality for people, utilitarianism says that if 51% of the population benefits from having a slave and the slaves are the 49%, we should allow enslavement, right? And I'm, I'm putting this in kind of ludicrous proportions here because 51% will benefit from the misery of the other 49%. Now, when I talk to this idea of philosophical traditions and the differences that philosophical traditions have to tech folks broadly, my engineering undergraduates and people in spaces dominated by expectations of objectivity and data-driven inquiry tend to gravitate toward assumptions that utilitarianism is the obvious moral framework until I, for example, point out this particular example, which they, as civic-minded people living in 2023, tend to bristle against. Do you think that our turn toward numbers is changing our ethics, particularly, I, I guess, in playing a role in elevating the idea of numbers as an objective way of measuring our values? Or more broadly, is our turn toward numbers changing our ethics? Uh, first, I want to say that was a brilliant short course in ethics. <laughs> so, and the philosophy of six. So, uh, well done, Deb. <laughs> yes, I do think uh, that the turn toward numbers is changing the way we think about ethics. The most potent example I can give is that in the U.S. government now, any law that uh, Congress people are contemplating or anybody, any regulation that people in the administration are contemplating must be submitted to the test of cost-benefit analysis, which is utilitarian, uh, the utilitarian criterion. Do the benefits outweigh the cost of taking this particular action? And it's purely accounting and in, in inquiry. To do cost-benefit analysis, somebody has to think, you know, what are the future benefits of doing this particular reg regulation and what are the future costs of doing this regulation? And if the benefits outweigh the cost, then then we pass the regulation. And if we don't, if they don't, we don't do the re we don't regulate it. It's been applied to things like seatbelts. Should we implement a seatbelt requirement? What would be the extra cost of having people have to wear seatbelts? An example I've, from one of the real advocates of cost benefit analysis is: Should the government introduce a program to lower the rate of rapes in prison? It's very high in American prison prisons. And how do you come up with numbers for the cost and benefits? The, the, the biggest problem is how far out into the future do you go? Because everything, every action has ripple effects. So those numbers are, in my view, they're infinitely plastic. They're infinitely manipulable. You can, if you, the costs are as big as everything you can imagine as an ancillary cost to any particular law or regulation. And the benefits are as big as anything you can think of as direct and indirect uh, benefits that your imagination can come up with. So the problem with that kind of thinking is the same problem that motivates my book. Numbers are not sort of fixed. 
And then the other, another problem that I find with using utilitarian ethics is that if we focus so much on what are the costs and benefits of correcting the problem uh, or with some particular regulation or, or law that, that we hope is going to correct the problem, it takes away our focus from what caused the problem in the first place. And usually the cause of a problem, if it's not a natural disaster or a so-called act of God, the cause of most of our social problems are actions and policies that human beings have taken in the past that have led to that, that situation that's difficult. And so I, I think it's really important as, as a matter of ethics to uncover a responsibility for for problems and try to do something about correcting problems before they happen rather than just doing the best you can after they've, uh, they've happened. And then the last thing I'll say is what, kind of what you said, that there are other ways of thinking about ethics besides utilitarianism. People have a strong sense of what is my ethical duty. Maybe honoring my parents or taking care of my parents is more important than anything else. And I would actually violate, I would break some law in order to do something to help my parents. It's a classic case, actually, and or helping a wife is a classic case in moral philosophy. There are other ways of thinking about what our ethical duties are and what it means to be a good human being or a righteous human being. There are lots of traditions that have interesting things to say about that. And I think if you get your students reading some of those traditions, they would give them some pause about how readily they want to just adopt numbers. We are out of time, but before I let you go, I want to ask one last question uh, in service of providing some insight, guidance, and some vision to my students. I teach a course on data science and human values, and a lot of those folks listen to the show. What would you want them to know or understand or think about as they move forward in their data science careers? What can we do as ethically minded data scientists to ensure that our numbers measure fairly and equitably and in ways that correct for possible harms caused by our numbering ambitions? It's a great question. So I think as data scientists, you, you are going to be doing two things. You're going to be using other people's numbers and you're going to be creating your own numbers. And the things I want you to think about apply in both cases, both sets of cases. Okay. First thing is, who's counting? This is like a checklist you can keep in your pocket. <laughs> who's counting and why do they count? Or why, or why do you want to count? And for what purpose? That I will say that the most important thing about a number, this comes out of that UN case I talked about earlier, the most important thing about a number is not how big it is, but who counted who designed the categories that got counted in the first place? Because that's what tells you how big the number is. Not uh, the, the bigness isn't, uh, the size isn't objective. It doesn't come out of heaven. Second thing, imagine other perspectives. Who will be affected by your numbers? And how, positively or neg negatively? Who gains, who loses from numbers that you created or somebody else created? How do the people who count, whether it's you or someone else, Define the thing being counted. What aspects or other factors are left out of categorization decisions? And again, you just have to use your imagination. You have to try to step outside your perspective. I would say a fourth thing is examine, always examine numbers and count in the counting method 
for the possible incentive effect, or what we called earlier the observer effect. And in light of those, how reliable are those numbers? Can you highlight uh, or make people more aware of where a number might be less reliable because it has incentive effects? Um, and can you think of ways to minimize incentive effects as you're creating numbers or as you, you know, uh, to challenge numbers that you're using? And the last thing I'd say is be playful, have fun. I had so much fun writing this book. I love thinking about numbers. I read children's books on counting all the time. And I think numbers can be just as creative as language, as those stories that you as a literature professor really like and that we as readers like. So keep in mind always that you're telling stories with numbers and be aware of those stories and have fun. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you, Dev. It's been a pleasure. Really been fun talking with you.